All right, church, great to be together. Here's what's happening. We're opening our Bibles, we're pulling them out, and we're opening together for the very last time to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. That's right, you heard me. Today, we bring to a close our series in the book of Daniel. It's been an amazing series. And some of you are thinking, wait a minute, there's six more chapters in Daniel and we're stopping the series. And all I can say is that a lot of pastors give up after chapter six, all right? They don't even try to tackle chapter seven. And in just a minute, you're gonna see why. <laughs> but, but all truth be told, here's what's happened. As we have prayed for our church and as we have talked about all that's going on in our culture and our world, we felt like now is the time to change courses a little bit, speak to some things that we think will be timely. And so next Sunday, I'm inviting all of our, our entire church together. I'd love us to be together all at once, Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Don't show up alone. Bring a friend. It's going to be a critical word for our church, a new series. I hope to see you there. But this morning, Daniel 7. How familiar are you with Daniel 7? Maybe not that familiar. Did you know that every commentary on Daniel agrees this is the central chapter, the most important chapter in the entire book? Because in Daniel 7, Daniel is given a complete overview of human history from his present to the very last day of human history, and Daniel is given the overview. Did you know, River West, there's, there's two ways to think about human history, really two ways. The first way is, is that human history is essentially open. It's not determined. Human history is, uh, the possibilities are endless. Anything can happen. And, and, and in that way of thinking about human history, we're sort of spiraling on this crash course towards some kind of a great unknown. And here's the thing. If that's what you believe about human history, that it's just sort of open, your life is going to be chaotic, okay? You're going to have a really unhealthy relationship with your newsfeed if you think human history is just open, spiraling to a great unknown. You're going to experience stress and distress. It's going to feel frantic. It's going to be horrible. You are not going to like election years, all right? I'm so thankful it's not an election year, right? <laughs> anyway, so that's one way to view human history. And actually, it's possible to say that you don't believe that, but live in such a way as if you do, okay? To say, I don't, I, I don't believe human history is open to anything, but we live like that's what we believe because it's easier said than done, right? And I'm preaching to myself right now. But here's the second way to view human history, and that way is that human history is closed, so there's open and closed. And in this way, what I mean by that is human history is determined, that it's ruled by an omnipotent God, a good God who has a plan and a purpose, and nothing's going to stop this God from bringing his purposes to pass. This is the biblical way to think about human history. And you know what? If you believe that, 
in your life, you might still experience some pain, but that pain does not have to necessarily involve panic. If you believe that in this life, you might go through times of fear, but that fear does not have to include the experience of being frantic. And my goal this morning is to encourage you and convince you out of Daniel 7, because this is the point of Daniel 7, that this is the right way, this is the biblical way to understand human history. Now, Daniel 7, if you know anything about the book of Daniel, Daniel 7 is what we call apocalyptic literature. And what apocalyptic, the, the easiest way to describe apocalyptic literature is that it's sort of this graphic, symbolic form of prophecy. The word apocalyptic means an unveiling. It means revelation. We have a whole book at the end of our Bible called Revelation, which is all apocalyptic literature. And it's, it's prophecy. It's, it's unveiling. It's trying to peel back reality so that the, so that the hearer, the, the people of God can see history from God's perspective. It's meant to bring hope, but it often comes through the use of imagery that's wild and crazy, bizarre, graphic, with strange head-scratching images and beasts, okay? Think guardians of the galaxy on steroids, okay? Think a massive Groot coming out of a lake of fire or some kind of talking trash panda, all right? That's apocalyptic literature, except unlike Guardians of the Galaxy, which I love, it's my daughter's favorite movie, unlike, unlike Guardians of the Galaxy, in the Bible, apocalyptic literature actually has a point. It has a purpose. And friends, that purpose is redemptive. So the purpose of Daniel 7 is, is to tell us something about redemptive history. The purpose is not for 21st century Christians to take it and overinterpret it and try to, try to figure out the, all the details of the end times and come up with crazy charts and timelines. That was not the purpose. The people in the book of Daniel were in exile. They were hurting. They were confused. They were frustrated. They were worried about the future. So what did God do? He gave Daniel a vision, this apocalyptic vision. He said, Daniel, I want you to know, history is not spiraling towards some unknown outcome. I've got a plan. I have an everlasting kingdom that's going to come to pass, and it's going to come to pass through the entrance into human history of the most important and unique and interesting person. But I'm getting ahead of myself. And enough with the intro. Let's look at it. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. Okay, so right away you notice two shifts have happened. The first shift is that we're no longer in chronological order. So we've now gone back. This is Belshazzar. This is the beginning of his reign. So we're actually back now before chapter five in terms of chronology. So our narrator has broken chronological order 
And that tells us he has a different agenda now. The first six chapters, his agenda was to take you through the story of life in Babylon. And now from seven to the end of the book, which I do want you to read, read Daniel 7 on, but the narrator's purpose is different. Now he's popping out of the natural world up into the supernatural world to encourage his people with visions, apocalyptic visions and prophecies. All right. The second shift, which is really interesting, is that in chapter seven, Daniel is the one who's had the vision. And this is a startling change because you remember up to this point, the only people having visions are pagan kings. And Daniel was the one who was sent in with the interpretation. Now, suddenly we get to chapter seven, Daniel's having the dream and Daniel needs the interpretation and he'll get the interpretation at the end of the chapter. But this is very different. It tells us that whereas before God was trying to communicate to pagan kings and, and warn them and have mercy on them, now God is wanting to communicate to his people about his purposes. And what does he want his people to see? Well, it's pretty graphic. It's pretty strange. We look at it. Chapter 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night... And behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea. And what you need to know before I keep reading is that in apocalyptic literature, and mostly in the Bible, the sea is always a symbol for chaos. It's a symbol for the place where evil originates. So whatever's coming out of the water right now, we know that it's chaotic, and we know that it's disordered, and we know that it's set against the purposes of God. This is evil coming up out of this sea. But did you notice who's stirring up the waters? Who's, who's behind the scenes making this happen? Astounding. Four winds of heaven are stirring up the waters. This is the living God. This is the sovereign God. This is, this is the God who's in control of human history. The people in this world who think they are in control, God is in control of those people. And he is allowing these waters to be stirred. And over his sovereign providential care, he's allowing these beasts to arise. Amazing. Look what happens. Four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand up on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, but it was raised up on one side. So it's, a, it's sort of, it's disproportionate. It's lopsided in a sense, raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour much flesh. Just try to picture this graphic, horrible bear with ribs in its mouth and blood and it's, it's lops. This is like Build-A-Bear gone really wrong, all right? And this bear is not a vegetarian. This bear is a, a meat eater, all right? This is graphic. This is horrible. It's meant to, it's meant to be vivid and ter terrifying. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. 
And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. So in this vision, this fourth beast is, is different. It's, it's, not, it's not like any of the other beasts that have come before. It's, it's more horrific. It's more destructive. It's terrifying. The beast isn't even compared to an animal that we would relate to. And look at this. It had 10 horns. And I considered the horns. Now, in apocalyptic literature, a horn represents kingly power authority. So these are, are kings or king, 10 separate kingdoms that all are a part of this beast. And later, the angel will tell us that that's what these horns represent. And, and look at this. There's another horn that rises up, even more horrible, but intelligent and boastful. Daniel says, behold, there came up among them, among those 10, another horn, a little horn, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, a sign of intelligence, and a mouth speaking boastful things. The ESV says great there, but really it should be boastful or arrogant. This horn that rises up at the end. It's frightening and intelligent and boastful and it knocks off other kings. So I just, I just want you to take this in. Take in the bizarre. Try to, you know, you don't even need to go back and read over it again so that you can deal with the vivid imagery. What, what is our narrator's purpose in this? That's the question we want to ask. What's the purpose of this vision? Why let Daniel go through this? And clearly it disturbed him. It kept him up at night. Later he's going to say, I was disturbed and sleepless and this like rocked my world. So why? Commentators rightly noted that this vision replicates the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had back in chapter two. Do you remember that? Chapter two feels like forever ago where Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a massive statue made out of precious metals. Remember, four precious metals, the head of gold and then silver and bronze and iron. And we learned in that chapter that each of those four metals represented different kingdoms that would arise, okay? Starting with Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and, and finally Rome, this is a replication of that vision, all right? Only from a different standpoint. So Nebuchadnezzar's vision was, was, was neutral, or at least it, it still highlights some of the, the, the positive qualities of these kingdoms. They were precious metals. But this vision now says, uh, now I'm going to show you the ongoing constant succession of kingdoms in our world from God's perspective, and it's far less compelling, far less attractive. They're beasts. They're, they're animals. 
we have this lion, this hybrid lion. Hybrids in apocalyptic literature, it means they're, they're disordered. They're against God's good order. God created things according to their kinds. We hear over and over in Genesis. And these kingdoms are against God and, and tweaked and distorted. They're hybrid animals. But it was really common to associate a kingdom with an animal. And Babylon was always associated with a lion, right? We actually still do this today, don't we? Uh, if, I, if, I, if I brought to your mind the vision of a bald eagle, you would immediately think what? You'd think the United States of America. Or if I brought to your mind a rooster, many of you, if you know this, you'd know, oh, yeah, okay, that's France. Or a dragon, that's China, right? So we often associate countries or even political parties with different animals. If 200 years from now someone said a giant donkey went to war against a giant elephant and they battled each other for control underneath the authority of the bald eagle, you would immediately go, oh, it's an election year. I'm so thankful it's not an election year, right? We don't need that. Okay, I'm being sarcastic. But so we do this. We associate kingdoms with animals, and that's what's happening in this vision. A lion with wings, that's Babylon, and then the wings get plucked off, and the mind of a man is given to this. This is Nebuchadnezzar's story, chapter 2. A lopsided bear that's vicious and, and, and bloodthirsty. That's Medo-Persia, where the Persians were the dominant side of that partnership, making it lopsided, okay? A leopard with four wings. Think the fastest moving creature on earth. And scholars have noted, what was the fastest spreading kingdom? Greece. Alexander the Great conquered the most massive territory in what felt like months. His, his victories were so quick. And then we come to this fourth beast, and there's not even an animal associated with it because it's so brutal. And, 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 and the reader recognizes this is Daniel's getting a vision of Rome. But, but here's what I want to suggest. In this fourth part of the vision, this beast is different. And even instead of just saying Rome, what I want to suggest to you is it's Roman-ish. It's Rome, but if you read the vision and if you read through the rest of chapter 7, it's Rome, but with an ongoing legacy that continues to stretch through human history, through different kinds of kings. You know, ten kings, that's symbolic, but, but different kings, and there's a legacy that's left. Even after the Roman Empire went away, we still live with the, the legacy of Rome, and it stretches on through this little horn who's, who's really wicked and boastful and, and arrogant. And you think, well, what's the author's goal? What's, what's he trying to do here? You might be surprised what I think his purpose is, all right? I think the purpose of this vision, and I'm not being crass in what I'm about to say. I'm being deadly serious with you. I think his purpose is to scare the hell out of us, okay? Truly, like literally, to scare the hell out of us, to frighten us, to wake us up so that we'll finally acknowledge that behind the scenes, behind the physical appearance of 
of human history, the constant flow of kingdoms and kings who are against God, we would finally acknowledge that behind all of that, there is an evil spiritual power that is allowing many, much of this to happen, to take place. Behind the world that we see is the true world that God sees. And occasionally he gives us access through it, through an unveiling, through an apocalypse. God says, let me, let me peel back and show you the supernatural understanding of what you're seeing in the natural world so that you'll wake up to reality. Because in that world, there's a spiritual battle going on. River West, there is a spiritual battle going on in our world. In our world, the movements, the kingdoms, the rulers, the political agendas, wicked people with too much power are often being empowered by evil demonic forces. There are atrocities, acts of evil that have happened and continue to happen in our world, even after the Enlightenment. Do not believe the Enlightenment lie of progress, which has crept into the church. Christians know. No, the Bible never promises the world's going to get better and better and better. The Bible tells us the world will get worse and worse and worse in a sense, and we're living that. And River West, so many of those atrocities, even in the last century, horrible atrocities, the only explanation for those is that in some sense they've been empowered by spiritual evil. This horn, we look back at your Bible, this horn particularly disturbed Daniel. He was disturbed. Did you know that the New Testament tells us more about this horn? It uses the term antichrist to describe whoever this leader will be. It will be a human leader that the New Testament describes as an antichrist. And in the Greek, that word anti does not necessarily mean Against it, it doesn't imply against, but actually it means instead of or in replacement of. So the Antichrist is not just against Christ. The Antichrist is trying to become the replacement of Christ, the substitute of Christ in our world to draw people away from the Savior that they need. Paul calls him the man of lawlessness. Listen to this. 1 John chapter 2, 18, John said, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so I say now, many Antichrists have come. John says, yes, there's this future day, this horn, this, this, this horrible king with the intelligence of a human who speaks boastful words. There's a, a day when the, the, the fulfillment of Antichrist will come, but in the meantime, there are little replicates of this Antichrist, little Antichrists at work in our world, empowered by spiritual evil, causing havoc. And here's the thing. Before you can appreciate God's resolution to all this in human history, you first have to come to terms with the actual spiritual underpinnings that created the problem in the first place. And so... God says, Daniel, I'm going 
I'm going to unveil. I'm going to peel this back. I'm going to let you see it and feel it. I'm going to freak you out right now. But can I tell you something? There's something really empowering to this. Now listen to what I'm about to say to you. This is critical. There's something empowering about having this information, this interpretive key, even as we have to live through the fulfillment of this prophecy. Let me illustrate. Do you remember the movie, The Imitation Game, with Benedict Cumberbatch? I love that name. Benedict Cumberbatch, all right? Uh, The Imitation Game, um, a really interesting movie. It tells the story of a British cryptanalyst named Alan Turing, and you know the story, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, of course, because he's aloof and brilliant. And Alan Turing, if you know the story, this is history. Uh, in the middle of World War II, the Germans are winning the war, and they have a code that they use to communicate with all of their troops and command ships around the world called the Enigma Code. And Alan Turing broke the code so that suddenly the British government were able to listen in on the Germans' plans. And they knew, we have won the war. Like, this was the moment where, before the Germans even knew it, the Allied troops had won the war. But here's the thing. This is the amazing part of the story. It came out much later in human history. The British knew, in order to actually win the war, we still have to go through some battles and even take losses in those battles. Because if the Germans figure out we've cracked the code, they'll be on to us and we won't win the war. Think of, the, think of what that felt like in human history. And my, my point is that's kind of how we are. That's, that's our experience of human history. We've got the code. We know what's going to happen. Does it mean we won't experience hurt? No. Does it mean our lives have to be filled with panic and frantic despair? Absolutely not. We know the outcome of human history, River West. History is not spiraling to an unknown. God is good. He is on the throne. He's got a plan. Amen. Will you believe that this morning? Will you believe that? And what happens is, what's going to happen next in Daniel 7 is that suddenly there is this jostling, intentionally abrupt change. Where Daniel's vision had been looking down, suddenly God says, okay, enough, enough looking down. Now I want you to look up. And, it's, and it just comes out of nowhere. You're expecting to hear more about these beasts coming out of the sea, but God appears to, he appears to be saying to Daniel, I don't actually want you to give too much attention down there because that's not where history's going. And that's not how history ends. I've often said there's two extremes when it comes to, to our spiritual enemy, Satan. One, is, one extreme is to not pay him any attention, which is a mistake. And the other extreme is to pay way too much attention, to give him too much credit, to give him too much authority or power or influence in our lives. God says, enough looking down, Daniel. Now I want you to look up. And River West, can I press that into your heart right now? Enough looking down, God says. It's time to look up. Have you been looking down too much? Is your nose and your heart and your worry buried in a news app? God says, stop looking down. Set the phone down. Turn off the news. 
open your Bible, it's time to look up, church, and see the glory of God, see the vision of God, see the victory of God. Oh, how we need that. So we look at this vision next. Here's what happened. I'm going to read this whole thing, but I promise you I'll come back later and unpack it. Just take it in, okay? Here's what happened next, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's the Hebrew way of saying countless numbers. You have to stop counting. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words, the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. So Daniel, first he looks up and sees the Ancient of Days. Now he's looking down again at the horn. It's like a tennis match. Have you ever seen people watching a tennis match? They're back and forth, and people are like, oh, the Ancient of Days. And they're like, I wonder, wait a minute, this horn was speaking arrogant words. I wonder how the Ancient of Days is going to respond to this. It's not pretty. I looked in because of the sound of the great words, the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed. It was given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then look at this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's the word for worship. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one, that shall never be destroyed. Amen. Amen. Just soak it in. (laughs) I struggle for where to even begin with this text. It's so powerful. It's so beautiful. It's so true. But let me make one observation about it structurally. Will you just look at your Bible with me for just a second and let me point out at a structural level, this text is actually designed to diminish the influence of that horn, that arrogant horn and that beast. That beast gets sandwiched between these two cosmic visions of divinity an ancient of days and a son of man who comes on the clouds and right in the middle sandwiched, he doesn't stand a chance, is this arrogant, boastful horn who thinks he's going to become a substitute for the Christ. And did you notice his defeat? 
it's, it's such an afterthought. It, get, it literally gets a sentence in the Bible. No description of the fight. There is no fight. There's no struggle. It's over before it started. So powerful. So true. And why? To give hope and comfort. Immediately, Daniel was comforted. Immediately, he knew, I've got the interpretive key to history. History's not out of control. God is on a throne And why? To encourage the people of God who are in exile, who are hurting. Are you hurting right now? I know you are. Because I've hurt. I've felt fear and confusion. I sat with the staff this week in a staff devotional. And and we felt emotion and we loved on one another and we shared many of the emotions and the confusion we're experiencing. We're in hard days, folks. What do we need? Do we need to keep looking down? No. We need God by his grace to direct our attention up to see this vision. And so just for a moment, will you allow me? Can I take a moment to blow your mind with some of the elements of this vision? Let me draw out the beauty. First, can we start with that that first text, 9-11? Look back at it. An ancient of days. Think about this. Three observations about this vision, okay? Number one, this is a picture of God the Father, of course. Notice, first, he's ancient, okay? He's ancient. And we need to make sure when we hear that phrase, ancient of days, we don't read it through the eyes of a modern, Western, youth-obsessed culture. We are so youth-obsessed in our culture, And if we're not careful, we hear the word ancient and we'll think senile, out of touch. How many of us, if we're being honest, often view older people. That's not what the word ancient means here. He's not out of touch. He's not senile, okay? Ancient is meant to convey eternality. The total absence of the experience of sequence in the face of a nonstop, annoying, rebellious sequence of kings and kingdoms that rise out of the sea to try to defy him. He's ancient. He was there before the seas got stirred and he'll be there at the end when the final beast is cast into a lake of fire. He's the ancient of days. Number two, did you notice this? He's sitting. You say, Pastor, that's weird. No, it's not. Think about this. He's not standing. He's sitting. And if you know anything about the Bible, true kings who are actually in charge, who aren't worried about what's happening, never stand. They don't stand at attention to anyone else. (laughs) They don't stand... Uh, wringing their palms, worrying, digging lint out of their pocket, they sit. Total composure, in absolute control. Listen to Hebrews 10, 12 and 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he, what? Sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies 
should be made a footstool for his feet. Beasts rising up in constant succession, constant opposition, frantically moving, pacing around the world, trying to cause disorder. Is God standing, worried, frantic, sleepless nights? Absolutely not. He's the Ancient of Days, and he's sitting on a throne. And lastly and most importantly, he's holy. Perfectly holy. Fire, see all the fire in there? Fire coming from the throne, firing wheels. This throne is on the move. It's not limited to one location. So there's fire, which is a sign of holiness. He's pure and white as wool, perfectly holy. His judgment is holy. The moment that God judges, you can know it will be perfectly holy by the book. The books are opened. Hallelujah. Look up. See him there. Make this passage home base in your life in these days. Oh, God, we need a vision of the ancient of days who will judge all of the evil, all of the spiritual wickedness in our world. The ancient of days will, there will come a moment where he'll tolerate it no longer. So powerful. But there's more. We jump now to the second vision. You see it there? Verse 13, what does Daniel see next? Coming on the clouds, one like a son of man. In the Aramaic, that means, it just at a face level, it just means one who appears to be a human. Whoever this is, it appears as if he's a human being. Now, he may turn out to be more than a human, and the fact that he's riding out on a cloud <laughs> suggests that he probably is more than a human, okay? If you were on an airplane and you looked out and you saw someone who looked like he was a human, but he was riding on the clouds, you'd think there's more going on here than meets the eye. So he's human. He's probably more than human, right? There he is coming on the clouds, and look what happens. He's honored. He's lifted the highest place. He's exalted. He's, he's given a kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. He's worshiped by every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. His dominion will never come to an end. And this is a prophecy. Human history is closed. It's not open, River West. This is not a matter of if, this is a matter of when. It's a prophecy. This is the summary of human history. And it begs the question, when in human history do these things get fulfilled? Okay, because this is a question. When in human history do we find the ancient of days sitting on his throne and pronouncing judgment on the kingdoms of the world? When does that happen? When in human history does a son of man come before the ancient of days to receive an everlasting kingdom that includes rule over all peoples, nations, and languages? When does that happen? And what I want to do to answer that question is I'm, if you'll just bear with me for just a minute, okay? I'm going to do what I should be doing most as your, as your shepherd. I'm going to wash you in God's word. Just bear with me and let me read over you just a few passages. Do not just hear these with your head, although that's critical. 
Let them wash over you. Let them have full access of your heart and your soul. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's a spiritual, you need this in your souls, friends. Listen to Psalm 2, just a few verses. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits on the heavens laughs. The Ancient of Days is laughing and sitting. Is he threatened? No. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Ancient of Days with a plan for human history when he'll judge and it will come with a king, his king, his anointed, his Messiah, who will be lifted up on Zion. How about this? Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 to 65. This is Jesus Christ on trial before the Sanhedrin. Caiaphas questioning him. Listen to what Jesus says in this moment. Listen to what he quotes in this moment. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. And what was the blasphemy? Jesus declared, and he claimed for himself his favorite title. The title that he used most often to describe himself. What was it? Daniel 7, verse 13, the son of man coming on the clouds. We learned this in our Luke study. This was the title Jesus used most. He actually avoided calling himself Messiah because of all the political misunderstandings of that term. And Often when people would even ask if he was the Messiah, he would turn and instead refer to himself as the son of man. Often in the most incredibly powerful, profound moments, moments like the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Who says that kind of a thing? Who has the authority to forgive sins? The son of man. Remember the moment we studied in Luke when Jesus said, I tell you, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Do you understand what Jesus was doing in that moment? He was saying, take one of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment. Do you know who is the Lord of the Fourth Commandment? Okay, you're either crazy or you want to get struck by lightning to say this. And Jesus said, you're looking at him, the Son of Man. And now in this moment... 
the critical moment, the climax of the gospel story, when a death sentence is about to be handed down for what he will say in this moment. And he knows this will result in his sacrificial death for human sin. It will result in the resurrection and power and the ascension to the right hand of the Father. And what is the text that Jesus decides to quote in this moment? Daniel 7, verse 13. You will see the Son of Man seated in power, coming on the clouds. You say, when is this fulfilled in human history? I'll tell you, River West. It was fulfilled at the moment that Jesus, our Savior, hung on a cross in our place, stamped out the power of sin and death for eternity, was laid in a tomb, but broke out in power and resurrection and ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. That is the moment that it was fulfilled. And we live in the time between the times, waiting for the Son of Man to return and finish what he started. Hallelujah. He has won the victory. This is why the Apostle Paul said of him, this is why God has given to him, Philippians 2, you know this passage. God has given to, he has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I have to ask you now, friends, this is where I have to end before we worship, before we take communion. Have you bowed your knee to Jesus? This question is not just the end of a sermon. This is the most important question you could possibly ask. Don't assume because you are worshiping online. Don't assume because you've come to church a few times. Don't assume because you've considered yourself a Christian that you have bowed your knee and taken upon your lips the name that God has exalted above every other name. Have you bowed to worship him? Have you cried out to him in faith? Have you put your hope in him and him alone? He is the son of man. He came on the clouds. He died for sin. He was raised in power. He ascended to the father where he was given the kingdom. And he sits now in this moment in total control, waiting for that perfect moment in human history when he'll return to bring it all to consummation. We worship him this morning. And we're going to do that right now. In just a moment, the worship team is going to lead us in the perfect song. And here's, here's the best way to respond. As you sing this song together, the lyrics describe a God who's in control of human history. Will you just flood that comment section with praise and worship to King Jesus? Say his name. Put your hope in his name. Thank him for what he's done in your life. Will you flood that comment section with words of praise as we sing and worship this morning? God bless you, River West. I'm gonna say a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, how we need this vision, how we need this apocalyptic vision, this unveiling. 
Help us to see the full reality of spiritual evil in our world and all that's happening. Not so that we'll live paralyzed, but so that we'll live with the interpretive key and with our eyes lifted to you, Lord God, the Ancient of Days, and to your Messiah, the Son of Man, who is the true King of the everlasting kingdom that can never be defeated. We praise you. That is the true, the guaranteed, the ultimate destination of human history. We look forward to that day, Father. And we long to be a part of a church that's cooperating with you to make that day a reality. And we praise you. And we pray these things together. In Jesus' name, amen.